Jonah chapter 3 records for us one of the most incredible and honestly unlikely events in all of human history. We're told Jonah, this resisting prophet, this angry man, this prodigal, finally obeys. He goes to the the great city of Nineveh, the, the center of the Assyrian Empire, and he delivers a direct but very forthcoming message that the Lord had given him. In Jonah 3 verse 4, Jonah enters the city, gets to the city center, and he declares, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words in the English, five in the original Hebrew. And what follows is really astounding. A simple message, a reluctant preacher, but there's power. Because we're told in verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let not them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And then this is the king's reasoning. For who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? While vague on specifics, there is no doubt God was communicating through Jonah two simple ideas to the citizens of Nineveh. One that was very direct and the other implied. First, God is crystal clear. There's no doubting it or reading around it that the wickedness of the Assyrians could no longer be tolerated. In Jonah 1 verse 2, God commanded Jonah the first time to arise, go to Nineveh, and cry out against it, explaining that their wickedness had come up before him. Since God is by very nature holy, By his nature, he's just. God can only allow human injustices to continue unabated, undeterred, unresisted for so long. In in regards to the wickedness of the Assyrian people, divine judgment could no longer be withheld. There was an expiration date. God could no longer sit idly by. And yet, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, realizing that their wickedness was about to be judged. And not just judged, but that the judgment would be just, warranted. The Ninevites, they come to see these 40 days, this delay, as being evidence of something else entirely. Yes, there's no doubt the direct message is that judgment was coming, but the indirect message of these 40 days, this delay, is that God's grace and mercy was being extended, that they were being given an opportunity to repent, to be saved. And don't temper the magnitude of what transpires. The promise of judgment, coupled with the existence of God's mercy and grace, caused an entire city of approximately a million plus wicked, vile, brutal Assyrians to repent. 
They repented of their sin. And then collectively, they cried out. They appealed for the salvation of the true and the living God. Indeed, isn't it it interesting that Nineveh was overturned? For what had been upside down had been flipped right side up. It was a different type of overthrowing. One of the most amazing aspects of the communal repentance of the Ninevites to the revelation of God's coming judgment and the extension of his grace is the fact that the Ninevites had zero guarantee that the Lord would actually forgive and spare them his wrath. Do you notice that as you read through this? There's no guarantees that if they repented, they would be spared. In actuality, the, the, the question posed by the king of Nineveh in verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and relent? It reveals a deep uncertainty as to what would close regardless of what they did at the end of these 40 days. You see, the fact that these Ninevites repent, not knowing if God would still judge or extend forgiveness, it illustrates the genuineness of what's really taking place. As a nation, they decided to cry mightily to God, to turn from their evil way, not to deter God's wrath. There was no guarantee of that. But they did so out of a genuine, authentic grief over the existence of their sin. As such, the Ninevites, and don't miss this, they repented not to escape an imminent judgment, They repented because it was the logical reaction to God's word. It made sense. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, the Apostle Paul observed that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Like Paul's point here is that there is an intrinsic difference between being sorry over the consequences of one's sin and genuine sorrow over sin itself. Everyone's sorry when they get caught. We're sorry and bummed out when there's consequences. But that's different than God's word coming into your life and, and convicting Like being sorry, even when I haven't been caught, just being sorry because the magnitude of my sin, the magnitude of my wickedness, the magnitude of what I'm doing is now weighing. Like that's an entirely different thing. Like we know here with certainty that the Ninevites were genuinely sorry over their wickedness. How do we know it? How do we know this was a godly sorrow as opposed to a worldly sorrow? Simple, one word, repentance. They chose to repent. And as a result of all of this, we read chapter 3, verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. And the Bible, repentance is a word that describes a changing of the mind that leads to a change in direction. A changing of the mind that leads to a change in direction. Repentance begins with a choice, a choice of the will, but it's then made evident by an action. 
God knew that the Ninevites repented. How? Well, we're told. He saw something. He saw their works, that they indeed turned from their evil way. Please note this. Actual repentance is something that can be actually seen. Like by its very definition, repentance yields a tangible evidence from an individual's life. You can say you've repented all day long, but if your change of mind hasn't led to a change of direction, repentance has never happened. J. Allen Blair remarked concerning the repentance of the Ninevites, quote, their works proved the reality of their words. Keep in mind, it was not works that saved the Ninevites from God's wrath. What saved the Ninevites was what their works revealed about their hearts. They end up being saved from judgment because repentance flowed from the fact that they believed God. God's word went forth and what are we told? They believed. They believed God's word. They took it seriously. It was a belief in what had been communicated through the word of the Lord that manifested in a real action, a change, a transformation, what we would call repentance, a turning away from their evil way. Repentance yielded a real result. And yet, repentance. Repentance is not simply a turning from something. No. Repentance in a biblical context is turning to someone. That's what repentance is. It's, it's, it's sad, and you've probably been in these type of sermons, but when you hear repentance talked about from most pulpits, the idea that ends up being presented reeks of legalism because they miss this point entirely, that repentance isn't a turning from something, but a turning to someone. When pastors speak of repentance, only to then emphasize the ceasing of a sinful behavior. The problem with this is that they've inadvertently minimized the power of the gospel by focusing on the wrong action. Repentance. In the new covenant context, isn't an exhortation for you to stop whatever it is you're presently doing. Rather, repentance in the New Testament context is an appeal that you come back to Jesus, you come back to the cross. Forget about whatever you're doing. Get your eyes off of that. Who cares? Repentance, yes, it's a stopping, but it's a turning to someone. That's what repentance is. Like to this point, Pastor David Guzik, he writes this. He says, he says, in the Christian life, repentance does not describe what you must do to turn to God. Repentance describes the very process of turning to God. When we truly turn to him, we turn away from the things that displease him. The primary focus of repentance is returning to a relationship, whatever your behaviors have led you away from. It's coming back to Christ. Friend, if Nineveh, if Nineveh repented on a hope that just maybe God would relent from his judgment, no guarantees, right? Just a hope and a prayer. How much more should you 
be willing to repent. Since you've been actually given a guarantee. It's not a hope and a prayer. It's not a maybe. God has said what will happen if you repent. A famous sermon given by the Apostle Peter. In Acts chapter 3 verse 19. This is what Peter says. He says, repent, therefore, and be converted. And then he says what will immediately happen. That your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from where? The presence of the Lord. Repentance coming back to Jesus so that what happens? My sins are blotted out, and I find refreshment in him. And Christian, always remember this. If repentance began when you first came to Jesus, when you turned from this world and you came to the cross and you accepted what Jesus did on your behalf, if repentance began the first time you came to Jesus, it will always manifest in the future when you make a decision to just come back, to come home, to return to Jesus and his love. The key, friend, when you stumble when you fall, when you blow it. The key is simple. Come back to your Savior. Knowing that his love is not deterred by your failure. In his book, The God Delusion, atheist Richard Dawkins writes a scathing rendition of God as he sees him in the Old Testament. Dawkins writes this, quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous, proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a homophobic, racist, genocidal bully. The truth is that I'm not sure Richard Dawkins has ever read the book of Jonah. You know, one of the, the macro lessons from the story of Jonah is how God lovingly pursues sinners. For it directly contrasts this, this general misconception. Aside from his patient dealings with Jonah, who if you and I had been God, we would have squished him like a bug two chapters ago, right? Like, but God is patient. His patience, his love is long-suffering as it pertains to Jonah. But the grace, I mean, grace, man, the grace that God demonstrated to a group of wicked, perverse Assyrians, these Ninevites, who deserve punishment. Don't miss it. They deserved whatever was coming. God would have been just and wiping them clean. But man, his grace, you see, these things illustrate, the book of Jonah illustrates that God's chief desire don't miss this because it applies to you. God's chief desire for all of humanity is salvation and restoration. It's not judgment. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we're told that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Ezekiel 33, 11, the prophet actually quotes God. This is what God says. I have no pleasure and the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. 
Aside from the fact that I do take solace knowing that God's patience with wickedness does last only so long. And, and I think that's, that's enough. Like, yet, yet 40, there are injustices that one day God will rectify. I, 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 maybe I'm still trying to explore the depths of grace, but I'm, I'm pretty pumped up that, that God's wrath will be poured out on certain people. Not anyone you know, like ISIS, people like that. But here's the truth. God's judgment. God's judgment. God's judgment of the nations, God's judgment of individuals, God's judgment of you is always a matter of last resort. God desires to save and to forgive. He takes no delight in the judgment of the wicked. As we seek to transition this tale of Jonah to its final act, please keep in mind that the great awakening that we see in Nineveh intended to stir an awakening in Jonah. Like, don't miss the purpose of the book. As we mentioned in the beginning, the purpose of the book is not a whale, great fish. It's not Nineveh. It's not any of those things. Everything that happens in this, little, in this little story is about God and his dealings with Jonah. The awakening of the Ninevites, the purpose, the point, is it supposed to do something in the heart of Jonah? Jonah. He should have stood there in awe, shouldn't he? Of God's love. He should have been amazed at God's mercy but the sad thing is that the repentance of the Ninevites, the extension of God's grace, it stirred something else entirely. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. In light of all of these things, the greatest awakening in human history, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. <laughs> what a reaction, right? What a reaction from someone who's just been used by God to bring about the greatest spiritual awakening in human history. It would be like me closing this sermon with an altar call. And like the whole, like, man, everybody gets saved. And I go back to my office and I'm just ticked off. God, I wanted you to kill those people, not save them. I was just being faithful. Dadgum you. Like, I mean... It's bizarre, isn't it? Like, it's, it's actually quite strange. True that it is real, it's raw. <laughs> the very fact that the Ninevites repented, that God forgave, judgment was spared, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. The idea presented in the Hebrew is that these things caused him to literally tremble. Like he was broken up inside of himself with violence. Jonah's perception here was that God's grace being demonstrated towards the wicked Ninevites was flat out evil. It was wicked. Jonah. Jonah believes that God has allowed his compassion to supersede his justice. It was therefore right that Jonah become angry. The language, the original language, this phrase, 
became angry. It indicates that, that Jonah's wrath was kindled. Like he became literally hot. He was boiling. He was stewing at what he had witnessed. But note, who's Jonah stewing at? Who's he ticked off concerning? Who's he angry with? It's not the Ninevites. Jonah is ticked off with God. He's angry with God. He's displeased at what he saw, and he's angry with the God who allowed it. What a contrast between Jonah's heart towards the Assyrians and that of the Lord's. Jonah wanted judgment. God desired salvation. Jonah hated these people. God loved them. Jonah craved vengeance. God pursued forgiveness. The truth of the matter is that Jonah's reaction, it demonstrates that he was completely out of touch with the heart of God. Pastor J.D. Garrar makes this observation of Jonah. He says, quote, A spirit of unforgiveness and a lack of generosity is the indication you are out of touch with the grace of God in your own life. Like Jonah's anger to God's grace being demonstrated to these undeserving Ninevites was actually evidence that he'd failed to experience the grace of God for himself. Have you ever noticed I don't mean this to be an insult. It might come across this way. But have you ever noticed, I know that's a loaded way of, of like setting you up for what comes next. Sorry to insult you. Tends to mean I'm about to insult you. Have you ever noticed that the longer a married couple lives together, like slowly over time, they start looking alike? Sorry, Jessica. This is what you're going to look like like, true, it's true. Like, isn't it true? Like, have you ever, like, you see these little old couples and you're like, they look so much alike. They didn't start that way. Somehow, like, over time, they kind of, you know, there's actually science to explain this phenomenon. Like, that there's actually some theories as to how this happens. Like, married couples who spend years and years and years sharing a myriad of life experiences with one another. Like they're in the fire together. They, they, they go through laughter together. They cry together. There's sorrow and frustration. They end up over time mirroring and developing the same facial features as their partner. Naturally, it just happens. Same wrinkles and lines, etc. Aside from this, isn't it simply a truth that human beings are incredibly impressionable? Because we're creatures of comfort, it's only natural that we end up seeking out people that foster environments we find most comfortable. Like we gravitate to people who share like interests and passions, which then only serves to reinforce those same character traits within ourselves. Very quickly, just as an example, I could give many, but consider a tire. Like if you dress like a biker, it's highly likely everyone you're friends with also dress like bikers. You're probably a biker. Like if you're sporty, my guess is most of your friends wear athletic gear. If you're outdoorsy, you can expect most of your associates to be decked out in camo or Carhartt. Shoot, it's easy to tell when Atlanta United has a soccer game on Sunday. You know how? Half the congregation is all geared up in AU gear, whether it's jerseys or at a minimum black, red, and gold. We have our packs, and we look like everyone else in our pack. In marriage, but even just societally, sociologically, it happens. It takes place. And, and that my friend, is the brilliance of the new covenant. Where is the law 
gave you rules to obey. All desiring, all in the attempt of manufacturing godliness, goodness. <laughs> Ironically, doing it apart from God's involvement. Because grace, like what does grace really do? Grace in its essence affords me something I don't deserve. It's a great gift. And what is the gift? It's the opportunity to hang out with Jesus. That is what God's grace does. It gives me the chance to hang out with Christ. Meaning, godliness, how is it attained? Is it attained by what I do or who I just hang out with? You see, godliness in the New Testament context isn't something I've got to muscle up to do. It's a person I need to hang out with. It's a natural manifestation of a relational association with God. Like, think about it. If you naturally emulate the people you spend the most time with, it's then only logical that the more time you spend with Jesus, the more your life will reflect his. See what I'm saying? And you don't have to work to do that. You just got to hang out with someone. It's easy. Christ-likeness, think about it. It's the natural manifestation of a relationship with Christ. I become Christ-like, like Christ, how? By hanging out with Christ. It's simple. Godliness occurs when I hang out with God. And he rubs off on me. And friend, the implications are profound, aren't they? One, if you're failing to reflect Christ, what's the key? Try harder? No. I don't know where I came up with that. <laughs> is it to try harder? No. What's the remedy if your life isn't reflecting Christ? Man, I, 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 I'm probably not hanging out with him. I probably should go chill with Jesus some. Should probably get into his words, spend some time in prayer. You know what? I'll hang out with Jesus, and you know, I should probably go and hang out with a bunch of other people who are also hanging out with Jesus. Like, so I can like watch the ball game with Jesus as opposed to a bunch of pagans. Hang out with Jesus. If, if my life is failing to reflect Christ, the problem isn't that I'm not doing the right things, it's that I'm not hanging out with the right person. Jesus, it's not rocket science. The other implication, though, if your life looks nothing like Jesus's, you have to ask yourself a serious question. If it looks nothing like Christ, then maybe you don't have a relationship with him at all. You have to consider that. The answer, the remedy to that is simple. As a matter of fact, after the service, I can just introduce you to him and you can start that glorious process. See, this was the case with Jonah. Jonah's reaction reveals a disconnect of the heart this is not Christ-like, his reaction. This isn't godly. And his reaction, he should have stepped back and be like, whoa, 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 something is now wrong with me. The prophet's reaction to the Ninevites in contrast with God's heart for the Ninevites was designed to reveal something. Because Jonah, and, and you've got to understand this to understand the chapter, because Jonah saw his rightness with God being based in his religious obedience to the law. We saw that. Jonah 2 verse 9, when he's in the belly of the fish, what does Jonah pray? He says, I will sacrifice. I will pay what I have vowed. It's the prayer of a religious man, not one who knows God. 
Because Jonah saw his rightness with God being based in religious obedience to the law, the salvation of the wicked Ninevites manifesting simply because they believed God and received his grace, it was an affront to his moralism. Don't miss that. Jonah is angry because what God has just done, it's assaulting something very dear to him. Jonah became angry because he perceived that what had just taken place was not fair, nor was it just. The Ninevites, in one moment, were given something Jonah had spent his whole life seeking to earn. And faced with that reality, Jonah really is only left with one of two conclusions. Either salvation is a gift from God to be received and not earned, meaning he needed to repent of his moralism and go back to a relationship with Jesus, or... God was completely inequitable, and therefore Jonah was justified in being angry. Sadly, because Jonah is not willing to let go of his moral rightness, he chooses the latter, and he becomes angry with God. Jonah did not believe that God was being equitable. Because Jonah's anger was rooted in his legalism, his moralism, his religion, in place of a transformative relationship with God, what then follows is all designed to address this core issue. Verse 2. So Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. How audacious that in his anger, Jonah finds himself upset with five things he knows to be true about God. Like, look at the list. These are the things Jonah's really ticked off about. Look at God, you know what I'm I'm really burning my saddle. It's this. You're gracious, dadgummit. And you're merciful. I'm really upset that you're slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. And what really, God, that just gets me, you're one who relents from doing harm. (laughs) Like all five of these concepts, like, kind of exist in all of our our worship music. (laughs) Like Jonah's the guy that comes to church sitting in the first pew, just totally upset about everything people are singing about God. These things tick me off. Like Jonah is not only upset at what God has done, but what he's doing here is he's accusing God of being a victim of his own nature. And the grand irony is that Jonah's anger is based in a correct understanding of who God is. Like, it's not a misconception of God that has fostered his anger. It is knowing God that has fostered his anger. It's it's as though Jonah is saying, God, you just can't help yourself, can you? Like, I knew that you would forgive the Ninevites if they repented. That's why I wanted no part in your plan from day one. How interesting that Jonah's ultimate conclusion is the same as the one he had on the boat. I've mentioned this, that that Jonah's 1 and 2 and Jonah's 3 and 4, they mirror each other. You can look at that on on your own, but they do almost, almost identically. Jonah's reaction here is the same as the boat. God, if you're determined to be like this, I'd rather die. Just kill me now. 
like, what a punk, right? <laughs> no one. No one would blame God if at this point the book ended with a lightning bolt from heaven. But I mean, I mean, like, would you be like, man, that's just, I can't believe God would do such a thing. No, like for me, it's like, yeah, Jonah, whoo, he's got it coming. Like he's a total punk. However, God is not done with Jonah because he poses now a question aimed at getting Jonah to think more fully through a situation. Verse four, then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? <laughs> because Jonah's anger manifested from his own sense of moral rightness. Because his anger was based in what he viewed as an inequity within God, the Lord immediately challenges Jonah's perception of self. That's what the question is designed to do. In light of the events of the first two chapters, this question, is it right for you? I think there was probably an if you to be angry? Of all the people to be angry, is you? You sure? You? It's as though he's like, he's asking, like, is it really right? Is it justified? For a recipient of my grace, you know, like you, to be angry when that same grace is then extended to someone else? Like, what right do you have to be angry? Verse 5, so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. Jonah was far from a righteous man. In actuality, apart from God's grace, Jonah should have perished in the sea. But clearly, Jonah had no right to be angry. Sadly, though, he refuses to answer the question. He refuses to enter this dialogue with God because he knows what the implications would be, right? Instead of repenting, Jonah declines to answer the Lord's question, and he intentionally gives God the cold shoulder. He goes out of the city. Jonah knows that God is not going to grant his request to die. So he leaves Nineveh, and he throws himself a colossal pity party. He knows Nineveh is going to be spared. But Jonah's sitting there, holding out hope. Maybe God would come through and judge anyway. Verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Because Jonah is resisting grace and is now giving God the silent treatment, the Lord employs a new strategy. He's going to provide an object lesson for Jonah with the specific intention of illustrating the emptiness of his religion and the rightness of God's grace. On a side note, you still can't but help see the relentlessness of God. He's not giving up on Jonah. Notice, while Jonah had built himself some type of shelter aimed at providing shade. It would seem Jonah's best attempt ends up failing. It fails to provide relief from the intense sun and the heat of this region. Though Jonah made himself a shelter, and don't miss it, he still finds himself miserable. Okay, this is probably one of the most complicated aspects of the whole story. So go with me here. Jonah builds a shelter because he's miserable. He's still miserable, inner God. Seeing Jonah's misery and the inadequacy of his shelter, what happens? We read, the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah 
that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. Now, now in that, this passage, there's three words that provide the context, what's happening. First, the Hebrew word misery, it's a loaded term. Gotta love the rain. Stay awake, stay awake, stay with me. The word misery, it's a loaded term. In its context, clearly, there's no doubt, the word describes a physical discomfort that Jonah's experiencing because of the sun. However, the word means much more. In the Hebrew, misery is the word ra. It's used in the Old Testament 663 times, and yet in 500 instances, the word's translated as evil or wickedness. Second word that's important. Notice God prepared a plant. In the Hebrew, hey, with that rain, we're not going anywhere, so I can go long. <laughs> notice, notice God prepared a plant. Prepared, it's the second word that's important. In the Hebrew, it's the identical word that we find describing the great fish at the end of chapter one. Like no doubt what's happening here from the structure, from the language. There's a contrast being established between the shelter that Jonah made and the plant that God prepared, which leads to the third word that explains the purpose of the plant. We're told God prepared a plant, why? To deliver, third word, Jonah from his misery. Once again, in the Hebrew, the word deliver, it means to rescue or to save. It implies an act that's done on one's behalf. Now, consider the underlying lesson here. Jonah is completely miserable. His misery, though, is much more than a, a physical ailment caused by the sun. Jonah is miserable on account of his evil, his sin, his wickedness, the alienation that he's experiencing with God. Jonah knows he's not right. That's why he doesn't answer God's question. So what does then Jonah do? And seeking to remedy his misery, he builds for himself a shelter. And yet, it doesn't take long for his best attempt at providing relief from misery to prove inadequate. His shelter failed to deliver him. Still hopelessly miserable, God graciously intervenes by preparing a supernatural covering in place of the inadequate covering. Not only is this plant a result of God's direct supernatural involvement, completely independent of Jonah, but it accomplished what his shelter failed to remedy. The covering that God prepared proved to be able, more than able, to deliver Jonah from the misery he was experiencing. Are you by chance picking up on maybe some larger themes happening? But, verse 7, as morning dawned, the next day, God prepared a worm. So it damaged the plant and it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wished death for himself. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Isn't it true the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? After the failure of his own shelter, God gave a plant to deliver Jonah from his misery, only to then the very next morning prepare a worm to destroy the plant that he made. 
Like not only now does Jonah find him back in the miserable conditions he had been in before with the sun beating on his head, but then you couple it with this east wind and Jonah's reaction is understandable. In a matter of hours, Jonah goes from being very grateful to now once again despairing of life itself. He's absolutely miserable because of the loss of the plant and the deliverance that plant had afforded. Jonah has grown so faint, we're told he wishes death for himself. His misery is so great and his outlook so bleak that Jonah concludes his life is no longer worth living. Verse nine, then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. Keep in mind, all, all of this, the, the scene, the plant, the worm, the wind, all of this has happened. It's all occurred between these two questions. Two questions are the bookends. Jonah has ignored the first question. That whole scene takes place. The scene closes, and what happens? God comes back and asks a second question to build off the first. In verse 4, God asks Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? Was Jonah's anger at the grace God had extended to the Ninevites righteous in light of the grace that he had received himself? Now, after the object lesson, God says again, Is it right for you to be angry? about the plant. And, and, and you miss this in the translation from Hebrew into English because it just, you know, Jonah replies, it is right. In the original language, th this is how it should be translated. Damn straight, I have every right to be angry. Like his reaction, it is right. In the Hebrew language, it borders on the profane. Jonah's so righteously vent... He curses at God. Is it right? You better believe it. Jonah, this answer, you have to realize it's got nothing to do with the plant. Jonah, you don't lash out and curse at God because of a plant. You lash out and you have this type of, of response, like it's only understandable when you realize the basis for his moralism is under assault. Like Jonah justifies his anger now because he refuses to accept that the basis of God's favor is grace and not a rightness to be earned. Verse 10 and 11, but the Lord said, it's again the fact that God doesn't smite him is amazing. But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night, perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, speaking of the innocent children and even more livestock? Like, in order to understand the larger point, don't forget, Jonah didn't want the plant to die. Why? One reason. The plant delivered him from his misery. And yet God here is pointing out to Jonah that the plant itself only existed as a manifestation of God's grace. God had given Jonah the plant in spite of Jonah, not because of him. His covering was a work of God in place of the failure of Jonah's shelter. 
the best attempts of man. You know, it's not an accident the Ninevites were saved, not because of the sacrifices or vows or promises that they made to God, like Jonah in the belly of the fish. They were saved simply on account that they were willing to receive God's grace and the salvation that grace affords. This is though God is saying, Jonah, the effective covering came not because of you. It wasn't your works, your efforts, your energy, your labor. It existed because I gave it. Jonah was holding fast to his works because he felt right by them. But God was trying to get him to see that his works were inadequate, and he was wrong. Jonah was religious. He was self-righteous, but don't miss it. He was miserable. The irony is that Jonah was angry with God for delivering the Ninevites from their misery when God was more than willing to deliver him from his misery. The same grace God had shown the Ninevites was equally available to Jonah if he would just open his eyes and receive it. And one of the more amazing aspects of this story, the story of Jonah, is that while Jonah's final words record him seeking to justify his anger, the book ends right here. It just ends abruptly with God presenting an open-ended question. Should I pity Nineveh? What makes this question so telling is what Jonah's answer would reveal. If Jonah answered yes, God, you should pity them. (laughs) Then he could receive. If he said no, then what basis did he have for God pitying him? You see, resisting the salvation of someone else calls into question the basis of your own salvation. If it's grace and grace alone. And and what's also interesting, this book doesn't even record Jonah's reply. There's not even a mention of what follows. The book just ends with God asking Jonah whether or not his desire to save the Ninevites through an act of grace is just. Historically, there seems to be ample evidence that Jonah, his story didn't end there. According to Jewish tradition, following verse 11, Jonah fell to his knees and he cried out, God, govern your world according to the measure of your mercy. And then Jonah got up, went back into Nineveh and proceeded to spend the rest of his days ministering to those people. Today, you can go to the Iraqi city of Mosul and you will find what is believed to be the tomb of the prophet Jonah, just outside of Nineveh. Aside from this, the very fact that we even have the book of Jonah at all kind of informs us that the prophet, he had to have repented and received God's grace. Like truthfully, it's, it's the only way you would have this story recorded from Jonah's firsthand account at all. He's a man who writes this book with candor, doesn't he? Full transparency. Jonah tells the story as it occurred, even knowing it doesn't make him look very good. He doesn't excuse his behavior. He's completely honest, and only an honest man would write this way after receiving God's grace. As it pertains to the Ninevites, there is no doubt that God worked mightily in this generation. But it doesn't take long in successive generations for them to return to their wickedness. The prophet Nahum actually warns again of a coming judgment. 
And 100 years later in 612 BC, Nineveh would be overthrown by the Babylonian Empire. One of the other bits of irony about this book is that it was written by Jonah for those living in the northern kingdom of Israel. Not only does the story seek to emphasize God's love for all of humanity, but its purpose was to draw the Israelites away from their religious moralism and into the power of God's grace. Like Nineveh, the Lord would would withhold judgment of his people if they would just believe God, repent of their sins, and return back to their relationship with him. Tragically, though, this message, the message of Jonah, would not be received. And the northern kingdom would be judged by God, (laughs) ironically, using none other than the Assyrians. Even today, at the close of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you know, the Jewish people do something interesting. At the very end of the day, they open the scrolls and they read the book of Jonah every year. And at the end, at the close of the reading, with one voice, they cry out, I am Jonah. I don't think they have any clue what they're actually saying. We're running out of time. I'm going to make four very quick points just to wrap it all up. And they're fast. First, I need to mention it. In no way can you say that the sovereign will of God trumped Jonah's ability to make his own free will decisions. People often want to point to the book of Jonah and say that it emphasizes God's sovereignty superseding the free will of man. I disagree. Jonah was free to run, but Jesus is free to to run after, to pursue. The tempest, the fish, instruments of God's chastening, but Jonah is still given an opportunity to respond to the second call. From my perspective, it's what makes the end of the book so brilliant. God wrestles with Jonah every step along the journey, but you can't say God determined how the story ends. The tale closes with God asking Jonah a question, a question Jonah must make a decision about. Secondly, how you respond to God's grace being demonstrated to people you don't believe deserve it will reveal so much about your own relationship with God. (laughs) Like, how do you know if a person's relationship with God is based in a work that God did or a work that they're seeking to do? It's very simple. Look at how they treat others. It's the easiest way to tell a legalist. Grace received will always manifest in a grace bestowed. (laughs) Thirdly, resisting grace leads to only greater misery. Please don't miss that. Is Jonah a happy person? No. This dude is miserable. Jonah resists grace, and he's worse for it. His life went down. And even when he decides to be obedient, begrudgingly, his life lacked joy. Hey, you can seek religion as a substitute. Build your own shelter, but it will fail to deliver you from misery. Religion only seeks to further alienate you from God, foster a prejudice towards others. It makes you miserable. You know, as I think of the story of Jonah, there's another story that comes to mind, a story that Jesus told, a story of a prodigal. The prodigal son. As a matter of fact, I think the story of the prodigal son almost mirrors the book of Jonah identically. I don't have time to get into it. But the story of the prodigal, it ends this way. 
You have the prodigal son who took the inheritance, disrespected his father, went in and blew it in the world. And then he humbled himself and he comes back and the father runs out and graciously receives him. Only time we see a father pursuing, running. I think we see it in Jonah. And this prodigal who's blown it all receives God's grace and he enters the feast. But there is a second brother, an older brother, the prodigal's brother, who's a religious man, a moral man, who's done everything right. And he comes and he sees the grace given to his brother. And what does the older son do? He's angry. He's angry about it. And then the story ends. Jesus just ends the story abruptly with what? The one receiving grace, enjoying the feast, and the one resisting grace, alienated and angry and miserable. You see, do you want, friend, your relationship with God to be based on what you deserve? Or would you rather have a relationship with God based on a free gift that He offered for you to receive? Finally, true deliverance is only found in a deliverer. Jonah sought deliverance in a shelter made by man but true deliverance can only come from a work, work of God. If you're miserable, and you're miserable because of your wickedness, like the Ninevites, or if you're miserable because of your own false sense of moral standing, like Jonah, either way, don't leave the book thinking about this. God wants to set you free. Jonah's misery was one of his own making. But friend, there's one thing clear. <laughs> I think one thing we can all agree on. Jesus is a better Jonah. That's what Jesus said. You know, in his pride, Jonah resisted grace and would rather die than see the Ninevites saved. But in his humility, Jesus. Jesus willingly laid down his life so that the grace of God might be made available for all mankind. Jonah Jonah closed his hand and with a raised fist resisted God's grace, making in the process his own life a mess. But Jesus, he willingly opened his hand to be nailed to a cross so that sinners like you and me might be able to receive a grace that no sinful man deserves. In a profound sense, I believe Jonah. Jonah intentionally, deliberately ends the story with this grand question left unanswered, ringing in our ears. Here's why. Because he wants you to make your own conclusion. See, this is a question Jonah had to answer for himself, but it was a question you have to answer. Friend, Will you continue resisting a grace that saves? Or will you humble yourself and receive this morning a grace that will change everything? There are consequences to resisting grace, but far greater results when we'd come to a cross and receive what Jesus is so willing to give. And so, Father, Lord, we just...